brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. I'm gonna. Uh, what do they say? Uh, peel back the third, the, the fourth wall. The third. What? What? What the fuck is the so, saying again, Alex? Well, peeling back the fourth wall is like yeah. talking to the audience. Directly. Yeah, exactly. And I was just gonna say that um, Alex and I have been just like talking fitness and random things for the past half hour and alex is like i think we should probably record now and i'm like yeah it sounds good so there's a I bunch mean, of I, stuff I you guys didn't you get often, man i'm happy to catch up we should we'll just record it for you know for history yeah that's what it is well it's fun i also booked and he'll be on the show next week um rick ianucci who's just like a legend green beret runs horses for heroes out of new mexico um which basically they have veterans with PTSD issues and also veterans now, he was telling me, like, without those issues, ride horses as a therapeutic thing. They do what Rick calls cowboy yoga. It's out of Santa Fe. But anyway, um, that's you- awesome. I, I was literally just talking the other day about how I feel like I should learn how to ride a horse because it's like one of those skills you just sort of expect out of an adult man. Yeah. You know, like. But uh, I grew up watching, you know, cowboy movies and TV shows where the relationship between a cowboy and a horse was like a sacred one, you know, like it's like having a, a, a loyal dog, but like that also it serves as your transportation, I guess. Yeah. But I feel like I should learn to ride a horse. I really want to. So, Rick, uh, you know, I, I know for a while now from doing uh, Well Cow Show, and I was just like, why haven't I said to Jack, I was like, why haven't we had Rick Iannucci on Software Brady? He was like, yeah, it's long overdue. So the thing is, like, with Rick, you get him on the phone, and he he just goes. So I was on the phone with him for probably a half hour. Then I'm talking to you for a half hour. <laughs> then I'm going to do the actual show. So it's like I've been procrastinating here. For the audience, by the way, I feel like everybody knows you at this point. You're pretty much the main writer at the site i'd say at this point even though you don't have that title but you write the most articles currently at news rep um alex is a former marine writes about all different types of things and now like changing your focus a little with um the current news rep site yeah you know i guess the biggest change in my focus has really just been trying to zoom out a little bit you know uh under soft rep we were really focused on the warfighter in the fight right and i uh, with the transition to news rep, we're trying not to lose sight of the warfighter, but we're trying to get a better glimpse of the whole fight, you know? So shifting over to foreign policy for me in terms of day-to-day work isn't that different. I'm still keeping track of the same stories. There are still the same fundamental elements involved, uh, but the scope of it is just a little bit different. I'm trying to look at how things affect, I guess how conflict affects the world as opposed to how the world is informing the conflict, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. And you've been doing some awesome work, which we'll get into. 
Um, before we do, actually, I think the audience, especially too, would like to get an update on your life. I mean, the fact that you have, you know, a new daughter at home, uh, and, and in the past few months, it's been pretty hectic for you with that. And then I also would like to hear about like what you've been up to fitness wise, cause you've even faced a few setbacks. Yeah, it has been, it's been a, it's been a year, man, but uh, <laughs> being a dad is the coolest job in the world. I, uh, I know it's cliche to say. I'll admit that I don't sleep anymore. I'll admit that my wife and I don't get a lot of alone time, you know, all those things you hear, but it's not, I guess leading up to being a dad, I was like, Oh, I'm not going to sleep anymore. My wife and I won't get alone time, but it's not like that at all. Instead, every, every day is rad. You know, my, my daughter wakes up from naps, just knowing how to do new things. You know, it's, it's like watching the coolest movie in the world every day. And you know, I, I love it. You know, and it's, it's been what's honestly kept me motivated. I have had some setbacks. My dad passed away recently. I got Lyme disease. I got, well, diagnosed with Lyme disease yeah, recently. Crazy. And uh, it's definitely made staying on top of my fitness game a bigger challenge, I guess. Uh, just that it's a combination of a lack of energy, which just kind of exacerbates the lack of sleep you get as a new dad. You, you definitely know, sound energetic, though, as usual, which is you well, know, just fun. I'm highly caffeinated. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> you know. But uh, I'm, I'm bouncing back really well. We caught the Lyme disease really early, and my body responded well to the treatment. The, the medication, to be honest with you, was harder on me, I think, than being sick. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm now I'm at that point where, like, I'm kind of bouncing back. My workouts are starting to get a little lively again. You know, it's it's tough to find time to get like the good solid workout I used to get in uh, with my daughter just because it's it's kind of like you feel guilty. Like, you know, I pass my daughter to my wife and I'm like, I know I've been working for 10 hours, but I need you to hang on to her for another hour and a half while I go lift, you know. Uh, But I think my wife understands that one of the big reasons why I'm still working out is because I want to make sure I'm capable of being the best dad that I can be. You know, yeah, I want to keep up with her. You know, she's on the cusp of walking already, man. You know, I need to work on my cardio just to be able to keep her alive. You know? And the cool thing for you, I would say, is that, you know, you don't work a traditional nine to five where you have to go somewhere. So you do get to experience all those moments. Dude, that's the best part of this job is that, you know, I do spend a lot of time at my desk. But uh, at any point in the day, my wife can be like, hey, can you watch her for a minute? Because I'm going to run to the store. And I get to just like walk down the stairs and sit down on the floor and play with my daughter for 20 minutes. You know, how many people can say they can do that at their lunch break? Yeah, it's a it's a winning lottery ticket. It's really, really lucky. Very cool, man. Um, well, before we get into what you've been writing, I know you're also working on a book that we'll talk about. Um, I, I spoke about this more in depth with Luke Ryan last show, but I, I think it's worth mentioning again uh, and getting your take on the death of Senator Senator John McCain. Uh, and I know he's a guy that you've written about as well. And, and I think it's safe to say like a hero of many of us at the site. I got to say, I have a lot of respect for John McCain. I, uh, I've, I voted for him when he ran for president, although I think that his presidential campaign was really poorly managed. I think that his campaign did more damage to John McCain's reputation than, than a lot of other things have since in that he allowed himself to be kind of portrayed as a mean old man throughout his presidential campaign, you know, and, uh, and I, and I don't think that that reflects the John McCain that we saw, you know, I didn't, I, you know, like a lot of people, I didn't always agree with John McCain's politics. A lot of times I did agree with John McCain's politics. Uh, but the one thing I can say is that I don't think he ever allowed outside pressure to really influence his decisions. 
And as far as lawmakers go, I like the idea of a guy who can make choose his beliefs a la carte. Uh, here in the country, we we tend to choose our politics like cable packages nowadays. Yeah, you know, true. Like, you know, I've got I've got some good friends. Uh, you know, I, as an example, I have some good friends from Israel that were always very liberal uh, when we were growing up, and were very liberal in college, but are now very conservative because supporting Israel is more of a conservative viewpoint. You know, and even though a lot of their social beliefs don't really fall in line with the Republican Party, they count themselves as Republicans now because. So being open support for Israel is more of a conservative perspective in today's culture, you know, and it's weird that we have to do that. It's weird that if you say you're a, a Republican, people assume you don't believe in climate change. And if you say you're a Democrat, people assume that you don't support, you know, fiscally conservative endeavors. And I, I, I would like to see more people and more lawmakers kind of follow that John McCain lead of I'm going to vote by my gut and by my own personal beliefs and even if you as the voter don't agree with what he did, for instance, when they were talking about the repeal of Obamacare and stuff, I think that we should respect the fact that he was willing to suffer those slings and arrows. You know, that's what we need out of our leaders is someone who is going to vote based on what he thinks is the best decision, not based on what he thinks is going to lead to, you know, a hashtag outrage. Yeah, I, I saw today, actually, it's on Breitbart, but um, that Sarah Palin is not invited to the funeral. That was interesting. I I hate all this. I hate all the politics involved with when someone dies, man. I, yeah. I, I don't like the fact that getting an invitation to a funeral has become a form of social currency. I don't like the fact that whether or not we're going to lower the flag has become a public debate. I, uh, I mean, I understand that to a certain extent when someone passes away, our our view of them immediately improves, right? Uh, I saw a funny thing about, you know, the Huffington Post ran article after article about how John McCain was a terrible racist when he was running for president. But then after he passed, you know, he's being touted as this progressive. And there's truth to that. There really is. But I don't like the fact that this man is not here to defend himself anymore, and we're using his name to advance our political scuffles, I guess, you know? Yeah. I, I think uh, with Trump, by the way, you know, obviously the statements he made on John McCain that were highly controversial, you know, led to some things. Uh, but right now he's in a situation where it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if he would, you know, be super respectful of John McCain and have all these great things to say these same people would be like, you don't really feel that way. You know, you're full of it. So he really I agree with you, man. No the, the space force that. is a great example. You know, the space force is a subject I've written about a lot, but, uh, the space force or the idea of a space branch, you know, originally space core in the last year, uh, was not a Donald Trump invention. It's been actively discussed for years. I mean, I remember in 2001, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, pitched the idea of, having a larger military presence in space because we need to defend our orbital assets. And at the time they said, well, you know, the air force has got it. And he said, okay, I mean, he was, he was on a committee appointed by uh, George W. Bush. I mean, we've been talking about a space branch or a space force. I mean, for more than a decade, it was even passed as a part of Congress's NDAA, you know, the national De defense authorization act Congress's budget last year included a requirement for the establishment of a space core. Uh, which we covered in depth on SoftRep, uh, but nobody in the national media paid much attention to it because it wasn't a trending topic at the time, you know. But then Donald Trump goes on the air and says, "I'm or I'm 
you know, directing the establishment of a space force and the national media went, he's crazy. This is (laughs) nuts. This is science fiction. When the truth of the matter is experts have been not only calling for this, but literally doing it at the Air Force Base Command for years. You know, yeah, it's just I, I think it makes, you know, good clickbait to be outraged over it. Um, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we'll get into this book th- that you're working on later. But I, I, you know, and this ties to it. I first want to get into these articles you've been writing about. And there's been several of them. New Russian technology that just doesn't work. And then them using that for ulterior motives in Syria. You have a few different um articles about this, like one talking about video game footage used by the Russian government, pretending that the U.S. was supporting ISIS, um, and and several other things. I, I think it's an interesting topic, and I'd like to get into it. Dude, Russian propaganda is probably the most entertaining stuff in the foreign policy sphere that you can study, because it is batshit crazy. It is, like, here's a great example. Russia has, as of late, just been making a business out of trying to build things that look like the science fiction stuff we saw in 80s movies and then telling the world that they have it and it works. Uh, the Urine 9, uh, spelled U-R-A-N, not U-R-I-N-E, <laughs> but uh, the the Urine 9 and the Urine 6 are both robots that are, uh, they're, they're ground combat drones effectively, you know? So the United States, for instance, has got a lot of drones in the air over conflict areas, but Russia's trying to get into, Russia does not have a formidable drone program for that type of thing, but they do have a lot of money invested in ground combat drones, which are effectively uh, infantry support drones. The Urine 6 is supposed to clear mines, and the Urine 9 is supposed to literally be, you know, an infantry support drone. It's got, uh, you know, a 7.62 machine gun on it, and uh, I think it's got a whole bunch of rockets and so forth. Uh, So recently, Russia had their Victory Day parade, and that was when they really unveiled the Urine 9 uh, as this successful endeavor that they had mounted and that was when they started releasing stories about its successes in Syria as a, as a combat drone. In order to participate in Russia's Victory Day Parade, you need to be a proven military technology, effectively. It's supposed to be a celebration of their successes. So feasibly, if the technology hasn't been fielded in combat yet, it doesn't belong in that parade. Right. So when the Urine 9 was there, everyone was really surprised and excited. That means that the, we've started this new era of ground combat drones Until like a month later, stories started to surface about when they actually tried to use it in combat, it was utterly useless. They couldn't maintain connectivity with it. They couldn't get it to engage in any offensive operations. It it was more a liability than it was anything else in the battlefield. But what Russia is looking to do is garner headlines in the national or in the international media that makes them look like a real player in the defense market, you know, because they're trying to sell things. Uh, the Su-57 is their fifth-generation fighter. Again, they deployed four of them to Syria out of the maybe 11 they have that actually exist and are operational. Uh, those four that were there got a lot of coverage in the international media, you know, for good reason. These are brand-new, effectively prototype stealth fighters, uh, making Russia one of only three nations on the planet with such an aircraft. Uh, so we were paying close attention. Then it turned out they didn't do anything and were effectively worthless. And Russia has now limited their order of these aircraft to only 12. Uh, as a comparison, America's orders of F-35s exceed 2,000. You know, So when you're talking about Russia being a fifth-generation fighter competitor, it's really kind of a joke. But as far as headline traffic, they get just as many headlines for their Su-57 as China does for their J-20, which is a much more practical and pragmatic platform. 
Russia's very good at selling themselves as a mil- as a capable military power. They're not very good at actually being one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this possibly something similar to remember with um, Ronald Reagan, the Space Force pro the, this uh, sorry, the Star Wars program where we we were saying that we had technology that we really didn't have. And I think it was used as a deterrent from other countries of, uh, you know, getting getting involved in something with us. I Is think this- that's a good insight into what the Star Wars program was there. I mean, the Star Wars program had strategic value yeah. if it had been completed. But I think more important than that was uh, the bluff that we could keep spending money like this. Exactly. So the, uh, do you think Russia is trying to do that same type of thing? I think what Russia is really looking to do is they're trying to get an influx of capital into their defense apparatus through foreign sales. You know, uh, the Su-57 was originally being developed in partnership with India with the idea being that they were going to sell them to India in large enough numbers that it would fund them building enough of them for themselves. You know, uh, and we're seeing this again with, you know, the T-14 Armada, which was Russia's advanced battle tank that was touted as the best tank in the world. Uh, you know, they've made about 100 of them, and now they have discontinued production of that. Again, I think because they intended to keep building. Uh, but the combination of economic sanctions that have been put on Russia through the Obama and Trump administrations, uh, some previous, but primarily those ones, uh, I think have really crippled Russia's uh, modernization effort. You know, when Vladimir Putin, uh, during back in 2000, uh, you know, some of the, some people might remember this, uh, there was a Russian submarine called the Kursk, which was, uh, named after the biggest world war II tank battle that Russia won against the Nazis. Uh, the Kursk went down back in 2000, uh, and then they weren't able to like mount a real rescue or recovery operation of the submarine because, the former Soviet assets that Russia had were just garbage now. No one had maintained them. There had been no money invested in it. And what ended up happening is all the guys that did survive the submarine going down eventually asphyxiated and died. Wow. Uh, uh, British and Norwegian submarines did get there and try to help. But by the time they were authorized by the Russian government to get down to the submarine, everybody was dead. You know. And wow. uh, after that, Vladimir Putin got a lot of backlash about – the state of the Russian military. And he started this big modernization effort that was supposed to return Russia to their heyday, you know, of the Soviet Union. It still hasn't happened. You know, uh, their one aircraft carrier, they just delayed refitting it and uh, maintaining it again. That The aircraft carrier has got to travel everywhere. It goes with a tugboat. It's so unreliable. Uh, but what Russia is very good at are things like the Status 6, uh, which is this doomsday drone you've been seeing in a lot of headlines as of late, it's a hundred megaton nuclear weapon, submersible drone uh, that can be launched from Russian submarines. The idea is that it would park itself, like let's say in the New York Harbor. And then if something bad were to happen, it would detonate and not only destroy the vast majority of New York City, a hundred megaton nuclear weapon, by the way, is twice as powerful than the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated Wow! in testing or anything. So, we're talking about a massive weapon, uh, but it wouldn't only destroy New York City. It would also create this massive irradiated tidal wave that would go hundreds of miles inland. It's So it's not really a doomsday weapon in that it would destroy the world, but it's a doomsday weapon in that it could destroy an entire region of a country. You know, uh, Likewise, their Sarmat, uh, their new Sarmat ICBM, uh, it's called the Satan II by NATO. <laughs> uh, 
Russia themselves advertised it as capable of destroying areas of land approximately the size of, quote, Texas or France, you know. Just as a frame of reference, America's most powerful nuclear ICBMs are a fraction of that powerful. Uh, America's ICBMs are among the weakest in terms of individual yield, you know, on the global stage. Uh, Russia and China have both unveiled new ICBMs in recent years, and America's still rocking Minuteman 3s from like 1973. Russia's really good at these high-profile programs because all they need to do is develop one functional SARMAT and then build a couple more. You know, they can ultimately have 100 of them maybe. It's a lot easier to do that in terms of funding than it is to outfit an entire million-man military with upgraded armor. This is interesting because it really does sound like everything that you're talking about is science fiction. It it absolutely is, man. You know, uh, Russia's nuclear-powered cruise missile that they've been touting is supposed to be this cruise missile that's not necessarily a nuclear weapon. It's propelled by a nuclear power plant that's supposed to give it an almost limitless fuel supply. And Putin touted this in a speech, you know, a few months ago. As because of this unlimited fuel supply, it could circumvent just about any ballistic missile defenses that exist currently. The truth is this missile doesn't work. Uh, They've tested it four times. Every time uh, the the nuclear power plant has failed to engage. But further, the truth is is that this is a 40-year-old Soviet program that they just dusted or they pulled it out of mothballs and put it out in front of the world to convey this image of technological advancements. The United States also experimented with nuclear-powered cruise missiles you know, 60 years ago and determined that they, they just weren't the, – the risk of using them didn't outweigh the advantage of having them, you know. Uh, but again, it's this science fiction technology, this idea of a nuclear-powered cruise missile with unlimited range or this idea of a doomsday submersible nuclear weapon. It's not necessarily about using these effectively in combat. It's more about being able to posture and claim you have them. Hmm. You know, and it's also about showing up in international headlines so that when nations that we're not friendly to, like Iran or Pakistan, are on the market to try to buy new weapons platforms, they're not going to get them from the U.S. They got to get them from somewhere. And Russia wants to be that supplier. Interesting, man. Um, you, you also wrote an article two days ago or when this goes up three days ago. Um, titled Russian groups tied to election meddling are now trying to convince Americans not to vaccinate their kids. This is interesting because this is one of these like propaganda things you've seen all over Facebook uh, and and social media for years. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's always been tied to Russia, but I, you know what this was uh, this reminded me of is Corey Alanis was on the show after, you know, closer to the end of the election. And you point to this same thing. He was saying that the reason for Russia meddling in the election was not to, you know, install a president they liked, but there was a lot more to it that, you know, that ends in four years or maybe eight years. This is more about undermining the U.S. government and the people's trust of the U.S. government. A hundred percent. This is the thing that people don't tend to realize in America. We view everything, especially when it comes to politics, obviously, in these four-year or eight-year windows. We view everything through the lens of our own election cycle. But when you're talking about our like nation-level competitors, which are primarily China is the big one and Russia to a lesser extent, they don't have those same concerns. You know, Vladimir Putin's been in power for a long time. He claims he's not going to run again, uh, but he'll retain power as long as he sees fit. 
you know, President Z, you know, in China, they recently did away with term limits, effectively making him president for life. These guys aren't their strategies are not planned through the lens of the U.S. election cycle. They have the benefit of being able to have long burning strategies. Uh, For instance, uh, this anti-vaccination versus vaccination debate. Uh, you know, there's there's the non-tinfoil and the tinfoil theories I have regarding it. The non-tinfoil theory is pretty simple. Just like leading up to the 2016 presidential election, Russian trolls were organizing U.S. protests and getting people to go to them. And then they were also organizing counter, counter protests yep. in the same location at the same time uh, with the – the interest was to create discord. Yeah, we found know? out that Russia, this has been covered on the show a while ago, months ago. Russia was buying Facebook ads and that type of thing for Black Lives Matter protests. Which, Absolutely, you know, yeah. These are the protests idea, that are, that are part of... discord within the U.S. You yeah, know? The, these are protests that are part of the left-wing movement, you know, and we're tying Russia strictly to the right wing of the U.S. So, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. It's all about discord. It's really short-sighted of us to assume that Russia would be rooting for a poli- for a certain political party or candidate. The truth of the matter is Russia's rooting for Russia, you know? Uh, so a lot of people see their effort in the 2016 election as a failure because it's been so highly publicized. To the contrary, I'd argue it's been a huge success, you know? Uh, people in America are as divided as ever, you know? Uh, you know, a, a recent study among conservatives showed that, like, a lot of people view Kim Jong-un in a better light than Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> which, hear me out, I don't like Nancy Pelosi, yeah. but we're talking about, like, a dictator who's got hundreds of thousands of people in what is effectively concentration camps, who's been threatening the United States with nuclear war for years, you know, threatening preemptive strikes for years. And then we've got, like, a politician whose personal views are different than our own. Yeah. And we're going to and, we, you know, it's crazy to me that here in the United States, we see the other political party as the real threat while you've got President Z and Vladimir Putin and, you know, and these other legitimate threats on the horizon that we, we kind of we approach with, you know, with nerf darts instead of actual kinetic force because we're much more interested in fighting with each other. You know, and, and that's really what this vaccination thing, I think, speaks to is it's not so much about. Russia trying to get Americans not to vaccinate their children. Although I do have a tinfoil cat hat theory about that. Or it's much well, more about getting Americans not to vaccinate their children, right? Well, well, you know, the, the, the effort has been international, but focused in the United States in that particular regard. No, I got you. You said getting Russian kids. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not about Americans. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but I, I really think what it is, is it's just about another avenue of discord to sow, you know, uh, my tinfoil cap theory would be, you know, they're playing the long game. This is the same. Th- I mean, the Soviet Union was in large part responsible for conspiracy theories in the United States about the government inventing the AIDS epidemic to control homosexual and African-American populations. The KGB also planted the conspiracy theory that it was the CIA that killed Kennedy, you know, when in truth, even though I, it doesn't look like it was, there was much better evidence to suggest that the Soviets were involved than the CIA was at the time anyway. Uh, the KGB, the Soviet Union, and then Russia uh, and the FSB and and other assets of, of their information operations, they know Americans love to pick each other apart. They know Americans don't want to trust their government. They just need to give us those nudges in the right directions. And Americans, by and large, are happy to eat it up, man. You know, 
confirmation bias is a real thing here in the States. And when you see something that says the candidate you hate did something terrible, you're eager to believe it, you know? Yeah. And so what Russia is able to do, thanks to social media, is where they used to have to release stories and like lesser known outlets and then cite them and better known outlets and try to get it into the the news sphere. Now they can engage with people directly pretending to be Americans also and just planting those seeds of dissent. You know, Not to mention a lot of mainstream American figures that people look up to and trust their views. They appear on RT. They appear on Russian propaganda television. And Dude, it's 100 percent true. And I can't grasp why, <laughs> you know. But then again, we also see, you know, no longer prominent American celebrities, you know, cozying up to the Russians as well. Steven Seagal is now Russia's ambassador for goodwill with the United States or some ridiculous title like that. And, you know, he's got his Russian passport in his pocket and lives in Moscow. Fred Durst is making films that are funded by the Kremlin now. He's living in Ukraine, uh, trying to advance this theory that it was good for the Crimean people that Russia annexed it. You know, they know that American people, and I don't necessarily mean, to be honest with you, software radio listeners, you guys tend to be well-informed. You know, you're listening to a podcast about national security. Uh, but your average person, and I can't blame them, you know, you're taking care of three kids, you got a full-time job, you've got a wife you're arguing with, you catch the news because it's on in the background while you make dinner. And so when you hear that Steven Seagal is trying to improve relations between Russia and the United States, you might remember Steven Seagal, you know, from fucking Crimson Tide or whatever it was. And, and you're thinking, maybe they're not that bad. You know, there's already Republicans out there wearing these shirts that say, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. Yeah. It's scary to me, man. This is Russia. In my opinion, China is a bigger threat to our national security and to our diplomatic power. But this idea that we're siding with Russia over the other political party because we're so divided in the United States is a really troubling development. What about your take on on people that are that feel, you know, it's good that Trump is currently making better relations with Russia as well as North Korea, because both of these nations are certainly no fan of Islamic terrorism. And many people see it as, hey, we can get together with the rest of the world and wipe out this threat of ISIS and and the larger threat of, you know, the Wahhabi sect of Islamic terrorism. I think that's a pretty cherry picked perspective. Uh, not not what you're saying is cherry picked, but uh, when people make that argument, they're cherry picking uh, the evidence to support it. You know, North Korea doesn't have any real significant stance on Islamic terrorism because it's not an issue that they've had to deal with. But they directly. could. They could in the future. You know, are, are we assuming that North Korea would provide military support? North Korea's military, as we've seen, you know, from defectors is malnourished, poorly equipped, undersupplied. They have enough trouble manning their borders. They certainly couldn't. I am, although I'm thinking of that security detail of Kim Jong-un in the limo and those guys running. The dude's that was, running. That was pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that was that's North Korea has been getting a crash course in propaganda from China and Russia over the past year, which I've written about uh, in terms of framing perceptions of their nation to make sure that America looks like the bully, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, they're good. They're good at, at conveying an image. You know, propaganda is a way of life within North Korean borders, and, and they're getting better at using propaganda instead of just threats uh, from beyond their borders. But uh, I don't think that there's a lot of truth to the idea of uh, Russia would be a big help in our war against Islamic terror because 
ultimately Russia's number one economically, Russia can't really support really broad military efforts. You know, uh, what they're doing in Syria is just about the extent I would argue of what Russia could afford to do outside of their borders. And what they're doing in Syria, while it is helping fight Islamic terror, it's also supporting a dictator that uses chemical weapons on his own people. Uh, you know, I, I, it reminds me of that old story where it's like, you know, either a frog or a turtle, depending on the story, uh, is approached by a scorpion. And the scorpion's like, I need you to take me across the river. And the frog says, no, you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, why would I sting you? We'll both drown. But then halfway across the river, he does because it's in his nature. Right? I've actually never heard that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an old axiom that's basically saying sometimes what's in a person's nature, uh, they're not making the conscious decision to be a bad guy. Yeah. They just are a bad guy. You know, and Vladimir Putin is a strategic genius, one might argue. You know, he's done a very good job of positioning himself to retain power. But I but he is ultimately a bad guy. You know, getting in bed with a bad guy, even with good intentions, is a really dangerous thing to do. I agree with the idea of working alongside Russia, of uh, cooperating with Russia in places like Syria. Uh, but I would value our NATO allies that we haven't been re demonstrating a real value toward. I would value our NATO allies over trying to establish a, a relationship with Russia. Yeah. Pragmatically, if only just because NATO is the superior fighting force and the superior funding. You know, even politics aside, uh, NATO represents a more significant military force on the planet. You're just you're better off cozying up with them than you are with Russia. So this ties into what I've been uh, teasing earlier before. You are working on an upcoming book regarding information operations, and it's going, going to be focused on China and Russia. Uh, I'd like to hear all about it and when we can expect to see that come out. Well, the book actually for soft rep readers, uh, it'll be really familiar because a lot of the content is based in large part on coverage I did with soft rep. A lot of the articles are culled directly from the website uh, as a like a on the day analysis of how things are going. The, the intent of the book is really to help you develop a better rounded perception of how information operations are conducted so that you can be aware of them when they're used on you. You know, so yeah. so the first portion of the book uh, delves only into historical uses of propaganda, ranging from a lot of things that people don't realize still inform our lives today to other things that maybe you might not have heard of. But, you know, a good example being carrots being good for your vision is the that idea that we have that mothers tell their kids to eat their carrots, you know, to help their eyesight, especially their night vision, is born out of British propaganda in World War II. There's no science to support the idea that eating carrots will improve your eyesight unless you have a beta carotene deficiency. You know, if you're so malnourished that the malnourishment is affecting your eyesight eating carrots will bring your eyesight back to what it was supposed to be. You know, if you were just eating well, uh, but I didn't know that adding, adding carrots to your diet won't do anything for your eyes. The reason why we believe it will is because of world war two. Uh, that was the first time aviators actually had to engage in battle in the skies at night. Right. So British aircraft and eventually American aircraft were tasked with trying to intercept German bombers as they approached England. In the, in the dark, that was very difficult to do because you can only rely on sight at the time. You know, now we have instrumentation we can rely on, uh, which I could get into a whole thing about UFOs from that, too, because this is also the birthplace of a lot of UFO theories. Uh, but in truth, what ended up happening was we developed a nose-mounted radar array uh, for the British fighters so that they could find these German bombers as they approached. 
But we didn't want Germany to know we had this technology. So we launched this huge propaganda campaign saying that the reason why American and British airplanes were able to intercept German bombers in the pitch black was because they ate so many British carrots and nothing in the world can improve your night vision better than carrots from the UK. <laughs> and we still believe it. Yeah. You know, uh, diamond engagement rings uh, were introduced by the De Beers company. This is not propaganda. It's marketing, which is just propaganda for a private source. Uh, that was only, you know, in our grandparents' lifetime that engagement rings became a thing. You know, the idea that it needs to be two months' salary, also a De Beers marketing ad campaign. Uh, De Beers, I actually have included they, this in the book. They put it in the can, marketing that you had to spend two that months? It, that it needed to be two months' salary. Wow. Yeah, to, I, that's you know, definitely and, uh, something I would like to do away with. I mean, I, I, I genuinely like I don't see myself getting married anytime soon, but I do think it's a ridiculous idea. Money can, could be spent. You can actually go through De Beers press releases and wow. find charts that they have that show how their market like the idea that you needed an engagement ring to get married before their marketing campaign, which was, let's say, in the United States at two percent. And then 30 years later at 80 percent. And then they, they launched the same campaign about 10 years later in Europe to similar success. And they recently launched a very similar campaign within the last 20 years or so in China. And it is also getting gradual traction. China is now embracing the idea of using a diamond engagement ring to get engaged when they previously hadn't. I'm surprised that people in China would be able to afford a diamond engagement ring. Well, you got to remember China's got a huge population. And while there is a large swath of them that live in horrible poverty, there's also a, a fair number of Chinese people that, that live rather well. It's one of the, yeah. it is arguably the first or second most powerful economy on the planet, you know? So yeah, but I mean, it is, it is even there. more of a pyramid by, you know, much more oh, of a God, pyramid yeah. than where we live, where it's the, the super, super wealthy at the top and very far and few. And in China, it's important to remember that the super wealthy at the top and the government are one and the same. Yeah. You know? Whereas in the United States, we have concerns about how much the super wealthy have infiltrated government. Uh, we at least still pretend that they're separate entities. You know, I mean, I would and say that, that, you know, they are in the difference that in America, you know, any person could just start their own business and it could be a huge success. I would agree with that. I would argue, however, that in America, in, in modern America, I couldn't be the president, you know, and my daughter likely couldn't either. Uh, I'm not a senator. I didn't go to an Ivy League college and we're not millionaires. So ch the chances of her having a reasonable shot at even being a seriously considered candidate for one of the major parties are so slim. I, I mean, I guess, but the two, the two last presidents, the two most recent certainly went against the grain. I mean, Barack Obama's hi history, I mean, I think just growing up as a kid, you heard, you know, we'll never have a black president, you know, and that happened. Uh, and, and also a president who lived a large portion of his life in foreign countries, uh, you know, with, with Donald Trump, he certainly had the wealth aspect, but the, the rest of his background did not meet that of what you thought a future president would be. Certainly See, not squeaky I disagree, queen. Man, because when you think about when George Bush, the first George Bush was elected president, he had been the director of the CIA, you know, but prior and a war hero, it's important to note. But prior to that, he was just a rich guy, you know, being a rich guy, a John F. Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy dynasty, political dynasty, in large part was born out of prior to being a political dynasty. It was a wealth. Based well, I, I would say Bill Clinton went against the grain of that. 
Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are another political dynasty of immense wealth. I'm t- but I'm talking about prior to that, prior to him becoming a governor. I mean, he did not grow up wealthy at all. He may, he may not have grown up wealthy, but it, but this is this is really what it comes down to when it, in the United States when it comes to running for president is you need to be very heavily connected with the established powers in order to be a serious candidate. By the time Bill Clinton ran for president, he was already already a very wealthy and powerful man. You know, by the time Barack Obama ran for president, he wasn't quite as wealthy and powerful, but he was well connected. Uh, It's not a legitimate, you know, Bernie Sanders and those guys would argue we have an oligarchy. I don't think that that's necessarily fair to say, but I do think it's fair to say that the barriers for entry into national level politics are significantly higher if you come from a low income family. Oh, yeah, for sure. I just think it's changing a lot. I mean, and also if you look at the amount of money from super PACs that went into not getting Donald Trump elected and that he still got elected, I mean, I think it really shook things up and it did change things, whether you love the guy or you hate the guy. Uh, no, you know, like I said, he certainly had the wealth. But I think there's no way to deny that Donald Trump getting elected is going to change how future elections progress. I don't oh, think yeah, absolutely. And then even if you look at these local elections, like I certainly am no fan of her, but the girl who won the Democratic primary in was it the Bronx, I believe. You know, what I'm talking about the Alexandra. Yeah, uh, the socialist. What's her name again? Alexandra Osh. Osh- uh, I don't remember the full name. You guys know. I'll be him, honest but- with you. It escapes me right now because I I honestly don't put a whole lot of, of this is the when it comes to local elections, I have a lot of trouble seeing regional and local elections as uh, as an indicator of national level politics. And I'm talking about reasons. it. So it's Alexandria Osasio Cortez, you know. But let's just say that she wins that seat. That is a you know that's a federal elected yep. seat, and you know we're talking about a girl who is younger than both of us, was working as a bartender. And you never know she could, you know, go from become a congressman and then go to being a senator. I mean, who knows? All right. I tell you what, man, if 30 years from now that bartender is the president, I will come back on <laughs> your show, whatever your show may be at the time, and I'll eat my words. In the meantime, uh, I'm not saying my daughter couldn't be the president. God knows if she wants to be. I hope she can be. Uh, I just... I would argue that in the United States, less so than in a place like China, but in the United States, if you don't come from influence, it's very difficult to develop any. Yeah, I would know? agree. I would agree. So and what you're saying is like a lot of old money stuff. But but as I said, I do think there are the exceptions to the rule. And I think Absolutely. Um, there's, there's a lot of exceptions. And that is why America, in my opinion, is great. Yeah. Uh, is is your ability for vertical. You can climb the ladder, so to speak, socially. You know, people will argue that you can't go from one class to another class in the United States. I've heard that argued by a lot of smarter people than me. But I I honestly, I would disagree using myself as an example. I was when I was born, my family lived. There were four of us in a 12 foot camping trailer that didn't have running water and got its electricity from a, a, a bunch of strung together surge protectors from the guy's house that let us keep our trailer on his land. You know, my dad was in college. My mom was in college. Uh, my dad went back to school later in life. He was in his 30s. Uh, and slowly we climbed our way up from there to when I was in high school making, you know, my family made pretty good money. You know, my, my parents both had college degrees. My mom had an associates at the time. Uh, and they really did change the way we lived. And then when you look at where I was born to where my daughter was born, you know, I when I was born, my parents were in college. When my daughter was born, I have a master's degree already. And uh, 
my, my house is fine. You know, we live in where we are safe. We're not hurting for food. You know, she doesn't have the same challenges that I faced as a young child. Uh, thanks to my parents' hard work. Yeah. And it, it might not always be easy to climb from one class to the next in one generation, but I genuinely believe that you can, you know? So what other stuff are you going to get into in this book? Some of those, you know, legends that, that became what we now take as information are pretty interesting. Uh, and I didn't know about either of those, but, uh, what, what other stuff is the book going to focus on? So after we get through the history and, you know, the history also includes uh, efforts that took place right here in the United States, including the JFK assassination and things of that nature. I'd like to hear Uh, your take on that. That's interesting. uh, Well, in truth, what it really was is the idea that the CIA assassinated JFK was not a Russian or a Soviet invention. Uh, There were definitely people in the United States that believed that there was a chance the CIA could have been involved or if not the CIA, kind of the original idea of a deep state government. Mm hmm. Uh, and what what the Kremlin saw in that was the opportunity to start sowing those same seeds of dissent that they continue to sow today. You know, uh, an opportunity to discredit some of the faith Americans have in their elected processes and in their, in their government itself. So what they did was they started advancing this theory that it was the CIA that killed Kennedy uh, in similar ways that they use now with the Internet. Uh, the Kremlin has always owned a number of media outlets some on the international level and some on the national level and not all based in Russia. So what they would do is they would run a story in one of their lesser known outlets that was poorly sourced that said the CIA killed Kennedy and here's evidence and here's a witness who says it was all true. Now that story itself is poorly sourced, but that outlet is such a low traffic outlet that it wasn't really held to the fire for it. Then another slightly more well, well known and more renowned outlet would cite that first story Another, again, it's important to note, Kremlin-based outlet would cite that story, and they'd create what I call a citation chain. So by the time RT or Sputnik run, runs the story that says maybe the CIA killed Kennedy, reports suggest, because they don't want to incriminate themselves, they're citing an outlet that cited an outlet that cited an outlet. The chain goes down 30 times to the point where you can't really find out where the story originated from, and then it simply won't die. You know, And that's... That's what they used to advance the idea that AIDS was a government invention, a biological weapon of the U.S. government. Uh, That's where that theory was advanced. It's where the theory that Kennedy was assassinated by CIA operatives was advanced. And it's been the basis of a number of other anti-American government theories over the years. There's even one theory. I'm not saying I buy it, but there's one theory that says that uh, the the Roswell incident was actually uh, a Soviet aircraft – uh, that had been filled with mutilated children. Uh, think, uh, it's complicated. They theorized that Dr. Mengele was liberated from Nazi Germany, kept in the Soviet Union secretly so that he could modify these poor children, load them into this <laughs> aircraft, fly it to Roswell and crash it just so that America would tear themselves apart worrying about aliens. I don't buy it, but it is in keeping with kind of their MO. You know, And we're still seeing it today. You know, Today they released video game footage uh, from an iPhone game. Yeah, I mentioned C- that, yeah. You know, so the iPhone game is C-130 air support, you know, and uh, they released footage from this game as evidence that American forces were supporting ISIS convoys in Syria. You know, they released it on Twitter. It was immediately caught out as bullshit. And they just, they didn't retract it. They just deleted the tweet and moved on because this is their <laughs> method. They'll just, yeah. 
you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and wait for something to stick. They claimed that uh, two Su-35 scared away an American F-22. About a week before Su-35s and F-22s had ever even seen each other in the same skies. And what was funny is, as the story about their Su-35 scaring away American fighters was making its rounds on the internet, an actual interaction occurred, and the Su-35s are the ones that bugged out. Hmm. So... They're, they're really good at getting ahead of the game. Like right now, they're claiming that America is planning another false flag chemical attack in Syria. They made similar claims before the last chemical attack took place. I would argue it's probably because Assad is planning another chemical attack and they're pre-positioning themselves to lay it at America's feet. What about uh, information operations that we've started that that has gone, you know, to, to become legend overseas? Are there any of those in this book? America at one time was the global leader in narrative management. And and I want to point out. I would think some of that because of maybe Hollywood, right? Absolutely. You know, and journalism, too. For a long time, the CIA maintained strong ties with people inside Hollywood and in the journalistic world. Uh, They no longer maintain those ties officially. I'm sure they still exist to some extent. Uh, But instead, China is actually the one influencing how Hollywood informs the world now much more than the United States uh, because the Chinese market is the second largest one in the world. This is the reason why movies like Skyscraper, you know, bomb here in the United States, but end up being financial successes. It's because they make a ton of money in the Chinese market, but the, the Chinese government dictates what movies can be released in their market. So as opposed to here in America where we have the MPAA saying, you know, hey, you're going to get a rated R or an NC-17 rating if you do that, and you might like make less money. China, for instance, told Marvel when they were making Doctor Strange that if you have the ancient one and the training take place in Tibet like it does in the comic books, we won't let you release the movie here, and you're going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. So they cast a white lady to play the ancient one, <laughs> and re- which and they got accused of whitewashing when in truth they did it uh, because the Chinese government effectively mandated it. Uh, But as far as American campaigns, this is actually our problem. Uh, Once upon a time, you know, World War I, World War II era, America was at the forefront of narrative management. And propaganda is not inherently nefarious, you know. Uh, A good narrative still needs to be spread, uh, just like a bad narrative needs to be spread. Uh, In the United States now, because we have this idea that propaganda and information operations are nefarious you know, uh, just intrinsically, the idea that if you produce propaganda, you have to be a bad guy. Uh, because we have this mindset, we just don't do it anymore. So what ends up happening is Russia comes out with these, you know, we call them bad actor narratives, where they're misleading the world, they're misleading the public about what's going on in Syria. Because your average American, they don't see Syria. All they know about Syria is what they get through the media, right? So Russia pushes hard on their own narratives to sway how we feel about it. And the United States responds to narratives as opposed to establishing their own. Uh, I can't take credit for this criticism. Uh, Dr. Ajit Mon, who's uh, the head of a think tank called Narrative Strategies that does some work with SOCOM, uh, she actually talks about this a lot in her book, uh, Narrative uh, Narrative Warfare. And uh, effectively what she argues is that because, so like, let's say you, Ian, are the bad guy and I am the good guy. And you want to tell the whole world that I cheated on my wife, let's just say. Now, you as the bad guy don't have that much of an audience among my friends and family, right? We operate in different circles. But when you come out and say, Alex cheated on his wife, so I go on my Facebook and write, 
Ian said I cheated on my wife. Here's the reasons why I didn't. What I'm really doing is planting that seed of doubt in my in the audiences that are unique to me because I'm responding to a narrative instead of establishing my own. The right thing to do if someone accuses you of cheating on your wife, of course, is to just say, I love my wife. You know, I, I value my relationship with my wife and then act on that. Instead, by saying, no, I didn't cheat, I'm suggesting that there's a possibility that I did. And that's what we're doing wrong in places like Syria, in places like the Pacific with the South China Sea, uh, throughout the majority of the Middle East, is we're letting the bad actor narratives come first, and then we're responding to them. We're trying to downplay them instead of letting our own good narratives dictate the conversation. An idea of propaganda that the U.S., you know, that was... um placed on on the citizens of the U.S. that I could think of was shortly after Benghazi when members of the government came out and, and blamed it on a YouTube video and it was proven to be false. Dude, I got to tell you, the Democratic Party, so I've got strong feelings about Benghazi just personally, but as a person who studies narratives and perceptions, the Democratic Party put on a clinic and their ability to make anyone who talks about Benghazi sound like a crackpot. Yeah, very true. Very true. You know? Uh, so Benghazi is a real legitimate, serious issue that someone needs to be held accountable for. I know some people may have been privately, but Benghazi is a legitimate, serious thing. Uh, but on the campaign trail, you know, in the 2016 presidential election, anybody who came out talking about Benghazi were dismissed in liberal circles as, you know, effectively, you know, just a crazy conservative as opposed to someone with a legitimate grievance. I think one of the that, problems was that there were conservatives who blew it up so much that they made it look like Hillary Clinton was like in a room cackling as, you know, guys were dying, you know, I and, would agree. But, and, but you know, that's true of all narratives in the United yeah. States for both parties. You know, every time Donald Trump does something, 60 people go out with protest signs and sit down on a highway and start crying. Every time, you know, Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi says something, 60 Republicans go on Facebook and say, we should shoot him. Uh, I, I try not to let those minority groups dictate my perceptions of overall national politics, Yeah, I agree. but unfortunately it's hard to avoid, you know? Uh, but you know, Benghazi is a good example of how the Republican party, instead of establishing a good actor narrative, uh, responded to the democratic party's bad actor narrative and, and you lose that battle, you know, and now Benghazi is a subject that is really only discussed amongst conservative groups. And, uh, and probably won't advance very much further in terms of holding anybody accountable. And it's because of some very it's some good quality marketing. Honestly, I would argue that our response to Benghazi was born out of more of the same. It ha Benghazi happened soon after Barack Obama said that there were no longer threats of that nature that we needed to worry about effectively. Uh, and then having that happen right before the presidential election would have reflected really poorly on him and really hurt his chances at re-election. So... You know, there we have it. Uh, and that's actually that speaks really importantly to something I, I I see a lot of people and I can sense people listening now going, yeah, but who cares, man? Like there's real fights going on. The reason why this matters is because it genuinely does affect the fight. Uh, Vietnam is a great example of how when public perception skews away from supporting an endeavor, we start mismanaging it. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, if, well, even, you know, the I would say in the Middle East, the narrative that that spread about the U.S. is that the U.S. just hates Muslims, period. 
you know, Absolutely. white blanket statement. You know? And then they could use videos of, you know, as we know, former Navy SEAL, like dropping the Quran on the ground, people burning the Quran and saying, this is what this country as a whole, all of them think of you. Yeah. And, and that's easy to find. It's easy to find individual evidence to support your, your bullshit claims. Yeah. Right? And that type of propaganda works. I think it does but, help but, recruit you know, terrorists. If you look at the rise of ISIS, it's another good example of, you know, a lot of people claim or blame Obama's administration uh, for creating a power vacuum that led to the rise of ISIS. And I, I think that's a fair criticism. But I think we need to remember that the Obama administration did that because of this overwhelming public support for pulling out of Iraq. Americans, by and large, I'm not saying all, I can hear people going, I didn't say that. <laughs> Americans, by and large, wanted our troops out of Iraq. So our elected officials, in the interest of trying to you know, secure further elections and deliver to their constituents, uh, didn't enact a good exit strategy. They just enacted an exit strategy in the yeah. interest of public popularity, you know? So then we pulled our troops out of Iraq by, by and large, you know, we created this power vacuum. ISIS then surfaces and then America finds itself in this quagmire having to decide what level of involvement we want to have and what we now perceive in the early days of ISIS to be kind of an internal struggle within Iraq. You know, uh, the idea that you can convince the American public to not support a conflict leading to America pulling out of the conflict has legitimate basis in historical fact. Russia, for instance, does not need to convince Donald Trump to not continue combat operations in Syria. Russia does not need to get a president elected that's a puppet for the Kremlin to get us to stop pursuing combat operations in Syria. All Russia really needs to do is convince enough Americans to call for an end to combat operations in Syria. And then when politicians are looking to get reelected because everything is viewed through the election cycle, changes are going to start to be made in policy in Syria or wherever it may be with the intent of appeasing those American voters who don't want us there anymore. And that's how we lose wars, man. America's defense apparatus, I believe, could win just about any fight we put them in as long as they have the full support of the U.S. government via the American people. Once that support starts to wane, so does funding, then defense budgets start to get cut, then maintenance stops happening, and we end up where we've been for the past year, with airplanes falling out of the sky, ships crashing into each other, and service members dying for no real good reason. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right. And I think this is going to be a good book about how, as you're saying, propaganda does work, information operations can be very effective. Uh, when does it come out? What's the title of it? Uh, the book is called The Perceptions Wars. It comes out September 10th, I want to say. Yeah, we'll call it September 10th. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's the date. You'll be able to find it on Amazon uh, as an ebook and in heart or a uh, paperback. And don't worry, I'll be splashing it all over every social media platform I can find. You know, I, I really I appreciate the support for this book. I've already gotten from a lot of people on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, it's it's been a labor of love over the past two years, and I'm excited about getting it out there. And it's it's completely self-published. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it's all me. You know, I've gotten a lot of help from other guys on the on the news rep and in the hurricane staff in terms of editing. I've gotten a lot of help from you know from other guys in terms of just giving me some perspectives. You know, I I haven't been in every one of the countries I talk about. I devote a lot of time to to Russia, to China, and to North Korea. Uh, you know, and, but as well as, you know, other parts of the world. And, it, you know, it's been really helpful for me to get to talk to this network we have uh, through Hurricane and through New News Rep and Soft Rep 
uh, you know, to, to talk to that guy who, you know, was in Crimea during the military annexation in 2014 by Russia, you know, to talk to a guy who's operated in China before, you know, it's really helped me flesh out the ideas that I developed academically uh, through my reading. But talking to somebody who there, there's really no replacement for tra- talking to somebody who was there, you know, and uh, so I got to say this is it's it's the product of hours and hours and hours I've spent, you know, uh, working at the computer. But it's also the product of a lot of help and support I've gotten from the software community. And I, I'm excited about it, man. That's great, dude. Yeah, we we are blessed to know a lot of subject matter experts on different issues. And it's great to utilize those guys. Um, before we wrap things up, as I always let you guys know, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations, military veterans from several branches that of course, as most of you know, by now is crate club. I'm looking forward to the future collaboration we're doing with NFW watches. We're going to have an exclusive crate club watch for premium tier members. That's coming soon. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Recently had Ernie Emerson back on the podcast. Emerson Knives have been in premium crates. So it's just a lot of great gear that you're going to dig. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats, training aids, and it's custom-built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S.-sourced, they're all-natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but they also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, whatever dog you have, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Also, as a reminder for everybody listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership that's only $4.99 a month. Check it out. Check out the app. Um, as I said in a recent show, uh, you know, you could watch everything from your mobile device, but it's probably better if you have a nice, um, you know, high resolution computer screen. I was talking about recently how every now and again you hear Hollywood directors come out and talk about now people like pirating movies and they'll say, like, I didn't make this movie to be seen on a little iPhone screen. And I, I kind of get that. So, yeah, before we get out of here, um, I, I always like to hear you plug your stuff, your Twitter, Instagram, anything else that you want to uh, promote out there. And, and oh, have man, the, I'm happy to many people of Soft Rep Radio follow. Yeah, this is your, you know, so I listen to a podcast called, uh, I listen to so many podcasts, but uh, there's a Kiss fan podcast called Three Sides of the Coin. It's actually really good. And they'll always say, like, this is your Gene Simmons moment <laughs> or you get to just <laughs> plug whatever you want. I don't know what we would call it, but uh yeah, well, I get to tell you guys what a big deal I am. Yeah, you know? well, I, I guess I'm you're Donald Trump deal moment. Unless you go to these links and follow me, and eventually you'll make me a big deal. Yeah, uh, 
But uh, you guys can always find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alex Hollings Writer. You can find me on Twitter. I do a lot more interacting on Twitter uh, at Alex Hollings 52. And uh, I just recently launched alexhollings.com. And uh, if you go there, you can find all my stories published on NewsRep. You can find all my appearances on places like SoftRep Radio. Uh, and once my book is for sale, you'll be able to find it there too. Nice, man. That's cool that you launched uh, a site for all of that as like the headquarters to see all of that. I feel like everybody has their own site now. You know, the big guys at the site, Brandon has got his own and Jack and now you. That's well, cool. Yeah. You know, it's all about just trying to be a one-stop shop. If you're interested in what I have to say, and I'm, boy, am I grateful that you are. <laughs> my, they'll turn my lights off if you guys stop being interested. If you're interested in what I have to say, check it out. But, you know, you can always find me on the newsrep.com. I, you know, I've got news stories posting just about every day. Every once in a while, you'll you'll get a day without me. But for the most part, you can't get me away from my desk. So if you really want to find me, go to NewsRep. But uh, if you're looking for some other stuff I've done, alexhollings.com is the place to be. It's funny because, you know, the last show I had Luke Ryan on, and Luke has a book that's now out, and it's just... Which it's, is fantastic, by the way. Yeah, you, you read Water it? First is an excellent book. Uh, I think I might have been the first review on Amazon. So you read the whole book? Yeah, it's awesome. It is a great book. Very I cool. actually, I had the, I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys in, break the fourth wall again. I actually <laughs> got to read a fair portion of it before it was published uh, and just got hooked. So it's, the minute it went on sale, I ordered it without telling Luke just because I wanted to get my hands on it. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah, you got to support your friends as opposed to just being like, send me a copy, bro. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. I, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, it, well, what's interesting to me is like all these guys I know who have been on the show who have written for the site and stuff like you're all writing very different stuff. You know, that book is a sci-fi end of the world apocalypse type book. You're doing this book on just information, um, information, More of an academic analysis, I suppose. Yeah. Although Jack, I, don't, Jack, I don't want to call it that. If you're interested in buying it, it's, it's a thrill ride, nonstop yeah. excitement. You know, <laughs> Jack, um, you know, has written a series of fiction books, but is now putting out his memoir and then if you look at Brandon's latest book, it's really a motivational type thing of conquering fear. And it's like all of these veterans are writing very different things. Or I could even throw in there, you know, he's a regular on on the podcast, like Leo Jenkins, who's written so much stuff. His most recent book was a poetry book. That seems out of left field. But and, and I've read a lot of it. I, you know, because it's cool. You just kind of it's not a book you have to read cover to cover. You just kind of skim through it and read a new poem when you can. Uh, but it, it, all these combat veterans writing very different things and showing a wide array of subjects that they could write about. You know, I think that's what's awesome about, well, for me, that's what's been awesome about soft rep and then news rep is that it's given me not just an opportunity to get my work out there, but it's given me an opportunity to really find my voice. You know, I, uh, I've always loved writing. I've always been a writer, uh, but it wasn't until I had an outlet where not only could I produce a lot of work and, you know, and work hard on it, but I could get direct feedback from readers. You know, the subscribers that comment at the bottom of the news rep articles, I'll, I can tell you, I can count more than one occasion where I was corrected in one of my details by a reader, you know, who just happened to be a subject matter expert on this. That's awesome. You know, it's this opportunity to not only pursue your passion for writing, but this opportunity to, to experience this dialogue that helps you become a better rounded researcher, a better rounded writer. Uh, I would argue my writing has become less formal in a, in a lot of ways over the years just because I now really do feel like I'm having a conversation with the readers that frequent our website when I'm writing. And uh, r having a conversation is different than writing a textbook. 
you know? Uh, it's different than writing even a really, uh, you know, a real hard hitting piece of news. If there's, if it says opinion at the front of something that I wrote, it really means that I'm approaching this like a dialogue I'm having with you across the kitchen table, you know? And that's, that's what news rep gives us. And, uh, I think it makes sense that through that, through finding your voice in that way, we end up exploring other things, you know, Luke's Luke going into fiction to me seems perfectly organic. He's such a natural fiction writer. Uh, Jack Murphy is another good example of a guy who their real life experiences inform their fiction in such a way that it doesn't feel like fiction when you're reading it. You know, it really, it feels grounded in reality. It's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what articles could we expect to see from you in the coming uh, week or so on, on news rep other than, you know, actual news going on? Is there, is there anything in particular you're looking to focus on and have some articles out in the coming days? Well, you know, I've been trying really hard to get more people to pay more attention to China uh, in large part because China represents a bigger threat to the United States, both militarily and diplomatically, but because they have a much because they're much better at marketing themselves, we tend to think of them more positively than we do Russia. You know, uh, the truth of the matter is the biggest threat to the United States on the horizon is China, particularly in the South China Sea. So I'm going to try my best and you'll see a lot more discussion on how China is framing conversations about them uh, in the in the global sphere to kind of give you a better sense of what the real threat actually is in China, you know, uh, but some of the other things that you can expect over the weekend, you'll probably see a story coming from me about the change of command in Afghanistan that's taken place, I believe, on September 2nd. I think that's on Sunday, uh, you know, and this the change of command to me, you know, if you've ever seen the movie War Machine, it's it's playing out a whole lot like the beginning and the end of War Machine. You know, uh, General Nichols is departing and saying all the same thing previous commanders have said as they departed. You know, and now we're getting a new commander and the Department of Defense is releasing press release after press release saying, you know, we're on the cusp of things changing in Afghanistan. And we may well be. But, uh, you know, thus far, I haven't really seen evidence to suggest that that we really are. I have not seen that, to be honest. But as I often say, you know, it's every time like movies come up on this show, they're like, you haven't seen that. But like, I'm I'm really more of a music guy. I know I know a ton of music movies i am not well versed on by any means but i'm you know, sure much of the audience war, has seen war machine war machine got mixed reactions from a lot of veterans uh but i you know the the movie opens with a new commanding general you know walking through the airport and heading into afghanistan and the movie closes with effectively the exact same scene with just a different new commanding general and that is a little bit of what it looks like we did have a three-day ceasefire in afghanistan recently that people are touting as a huge step towards peace uh, but, you know, the Afghan government pitched a second ceasefire and the Taliban denied it. You know, really what we're seeing now is a shift in strategy. We used to say that we were going to stay in Afghanistan until we were victorious. Now we say victory isn't really the outcome we're looking for. Peace is the outcome we're looking for. Uh, so maybe that shift alone could be what changes things in Afghanistan. Uh, but until I see actual evidence to support the idea that anything's different, it just kind of seems like more of the same to me. Yeah, man. Well, hey, always love having you on. And regardless of, you know, probably having very little sleep, having a young daughter in the house. And on top of that, Lyme disease, as you discussed earlier, I, you sound like a pretty energetic guy to me. I would by no means think that you have anything going on. 
Well, I appreciate it, man. I'm excited to be on. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, you sound as energetic as ever. I mean, I, I think of you as a very energetic guy, and you, you sound the same as always. So it's just, it's almost hard for me to believe that you have all this stuff going on, but you do. You know, I, I think just like any, but a lot of the people listening and you personally can attest, you know, when the going gets tough, the best thing you can do is get to work. Yeah. You know, and that's exactly how I've approached it. And it's kept me moving, you know, so and now I, I really I'm, I'm on the upswing and uh, I think things are only going to get better from here. That's cool, man. Well, I hope people check out, you know, all your social media. You're, you're pretty active in, in showing your daughter growing up and all that stuff. And I'm glad that you're enjoying all of it. Yeah, if you got, I didn't mention my Instagram, but if you're really interested in pictures of homemade knives and little girls, <laughs> but like only to say they're cute, let's not be weird. You can always find me on Instagram and alexalex52 also. Cool. I thought uh, is archetype 52 is. Uh, oh, it is archetype 52. I don't know what it is. How it's is it that I know your Instagram and you don't? I, <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna look at this right now. Yeah, you're archetype fifty two. Yeah, arch- that's what I meant to say this whole time. <laughs> I was like Alex Hollings fifty two because I knew that was Twitter, but it, that's funny, dude. It's one of those funny things that you just remember weird information like that. Um, well, archetype archetype's a weird name, which is why I picked it in the first place. You I know? think but of it as uh, the Fear Factory album. My Instagram uh, came about well before I was a professional writer, so it was you know. Back in those days when I was just trying to be cool instead of getting attention. Nice, man. All right. Well, dude, great talking to you. Um, and as always, people should check out the newsrep.com. Check out the latest from you. Enjoyed uh, this week of shows between you and Luke Ryan. And I know that there's people in the audience like, where the hell is Jack Murphy? He will be back next week. Uh, it's been a while. It's been about a month and a half with no Jack Murphy. And I mean... He's an important part of this operation. Just been me holding it down. So hopefully I'm excited I've been doing, to have Jack back too. I'm, yeah. I'm hopefully I've been Jack back in the country as well. Yeah. Hopefully I've been doing a decent job in the eyes of you guys. I did luckily have Jim West here for a couple episodes, although one, he was supposed to be in studio and couldn't make it. Uh, but I did have him in studio for one episode, which I think everybody enjoyed that video of him swinging the knife around and demonstrating. <laughs> you saw that, right? Yeah, I did. It was awesome. Yeah, dude, he's he's like a master with that stuff. The thing that's interesting about Jim is I think if you just saw him in the streets, you'd be you'd think he's like a regular 60 year old man. I mean, even though he works out, he doesn't uh, he'll admit to this. He doesn't really watch what he eats or drinks and all that. That's why, you know, he's still got a little bit of a gut going. He doesn't necessarily look like a fit guy, but I, I will put money on him over just about anybody in a combat situation. You know, honestly, even when you're looking at elite special operations teams, you know, they don't they work out and stuff like that. But they're never guys. I'm a big workout guy. You know, I live in the gym. They're they're very rarely guys that look like gym rats because aesthetic muscle doesn't serve a whole lot of purpose, you know, in a lot of combat scenarios. They're always just hard men. That's what Jim West is. He's a hard man. I think a lot of them become gym rats after they leave, you know, because it's like you look at pictures of, uh, Nick Irving in combat and he's like a slimmer guy. Then you look at Nick Irving on his Instagram now and you're like, holy shit, this guy's a beast. (laughs) You know, you look, you look at guys like Jim West. It reminds me of that old saying, like, beware an old man in a profession where men die young, you know, when, when you've just led that life for long enough, it's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, my next door neighbor's a welder. And when you shake hands with them, you feel like you could hammer nails into the palms of his hands. You know, it's, uh, you lead a hard life, you become a hard man. And that's what Jim West is. Well, so Brandon's latest book is, you know, um, Mastering Fear. 
and Jim read it. And the funny thing is, Brandon has said on you know his podcast that we were doing Power Thought, and I think on here that you know they're the only people who don't deal with fear or like you have to be stupid or just like crazy. Like everybody deals with fear in some way. And when Absolutely. Jim was on the podcast last time, like he read the whole book and he loved it. And he's like, fear is not something I've really dealt with in my life. So I think he is on the crazy side. Well, I would. Argue, so I, I don't necessarily, you know, cause I'm, I've always been a fighter, you know, I've pursued fighting for a long time, but I do have a different approach than Jim West does. Uh, for instance, I'm, I'm a big believer in not having to hate the person you're fighting. Uh, I'm a big believer in not having to hate that person in combat even. Uh, cause that's, uh, I think that the fight is its own thing. Uh, in my mind, the fight, the conflict, the struggle is its own entity onto itself. And, uh, I don't need to bring emotion into it in order to operate in that sphere, but that's how my brain works. That's not how all brains work. You know, so Jim West is a good example of his brain might not work the same way that mine does, but man, oh man, do I respect the way his brain works. Yeah, I mean, but I just, I genuinely believe him when he says he doesn't really deal with fear. I do too. You know what I mean? Like, I believe <laughs> it too, you know? Yeah. Honestly, out of some guys, I, out of some guys I'd call bullshit. Jim exactly. Out of most of them, I would. But Jim, he's a genuine dude. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll let you get back to writing and your daughter and all that other great stuff. Thanks for joining me, Alex. I, I really appreciate it, man. Hey, man, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.